Hey, out there in podcast land, welcome to the August edition of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center. I am your host, Jonathan Hout, the Center's Executive Director here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. As ever, I want to thank producer and friend of the Conroy Center, Pam Stack, for making this podcast available to us each month. Tonight, our guest is Jason Mott. Jason is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of four novels, The Returned, The Wonder of All Things, The Crossing, and most recently, Hell of a Book. Jason's debut novel, The Returned, was adapted as the television series Resurrection, which ran for two seasons on ABC. Hell of a Book, which we'll be discussing tonight, has been appearing on best of and must read lists for months, including those of Entertainment Weekly, New York Post, USA Today, Fortune, Real Simple, The Roots, and Good Morning America. The novel was also a selection of the Today Show's Read with a Jenna book club, for which Jason was a guest on the Today Show. He's been both a past and future guest author at Conroy Center events here in Beaufort. And he'll be back with us in the Low Country about a month from tonight, actually, on September 23rd as part of our fifth annual Low Country Book Club convention. Jason will be appearing at independent bookstore Nevermore Books in Beaufort in conversation with bookseller Lori Anderson. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Welcome. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. So my question for you, as you are a recent guest on the Today Show, uh, is why has success not yet ruined you? <laughs> well, who says it hasn't? <laughs> the opportunities have certainly been there for it, uh, but but what has uh, all of this been like to see uh, the book, hell of a book, appearing on all of these lists, and, and then to get national television attention as well? Um, it's been pretty terrific, actually. It was really unexpected. Um, this was a book where I probably took the most chances when it comes to writing, and uh, just the it, it was a kind of a bit of a changing of path as far as my writing perspective goes and some of my branding and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it's really great to take a risk on a project and actually have it kind of pay off where you, it actually, you know, becomes the home run that you hoped it would be. So that's been the biggest thing for me. Congratulations on all of the success for the book. It is, it is well-deserved. It, it's a really difficult book to describe, as I you know, see consistently <laughs> as people attempt to do that, because it does multiple things beautifully, but all at once and always in step with each other. And, and uh, I'll circle back around to a couple of those topics. But I was reminded recently of a, a conversation I had here on the podcast. Uh, you know, pandemic time is is we experience differently. It somehow feels like yesterday and 40 years ago at the same time. But it was, uh, <laughs> yes. I think, almost a year ago when Anthony Grooms was a guest on the show. And at that point, we uh, as a nation were in the height of, of uh, protest marches around the Black Lives Matter movement. And major media, newspapers, televisions, shows, et cetera, were putting out uh, anti-racist reading lists and Tony Grooms on the podcast said, well, you know, this is what happens in, in moments like this, in moments of tremendous social justice unrest. Black people organize and protest and white people form book clubs. And he wasn't trying to make light of either, but he was just responding to what we were seeing in the world at that moment. And Hell of a Book is now being discussed among those book clubs it is something that uh, that is circulating out there as a book, not just being read, but being discussed, whether that's in fellowship halls of African-American churches or in libraries or bookstores or in people's homes. What are you hoping those conversations are? What are you hoping that people are, what 
questions are you hoping that people are asking themselves as they encounter Hell of a Book? Uh, that's a big question because I think there are so many different things that the book tries to discuss in so many conversations that it wants to spark with people. Um, for me, the writing process, a lot of my goal was it for the book was kind of multiple goals, but the biggest two were for particularly for white readers. I wanted them to be able to come to this discussion because I feel like the I feel like a lot of white people, white Americans, kind of come to this this context of wanting to know what to do and how to enter this conversation on race in America and, you know, police violence and Black Lives Matter and all those things, <clears throat> they seem so very layered and so very complex, which they completely are. And I think it can be hard for certain people who are maybe pretty far removed from that to find a way into that conversation to kind of get perspective on it. And so I wanted the book to be this entryway into this very complex conversation about how the black experience is from both childhood through adulthood to parenthood, like all these different phases through which the the black life kind of exists and the ways in which it changes and, and develops and the challenges of it. So I wanted them to kind of have a way to come to it and see that dynamic and also be a part of that conversation and ask questions and learn. And also for black readers as well, I want them to be able to come to this book and see themselves and see themselves in a very different kind of fashion. I feel like, because I would argue there's nothing new being discussed in this novel. Like, it is essentially at its core just about, you know, civil rights and the black experience in America, which countless others have talked about. But my goal was to have that discussion in a very new way and to present these characters in a very different way in which we've not seen. Um, there are elements of the book that lean on, like, film noir and comedy and absurdity and all these kinds of things. And I feel like the the black voice hasn't had a strong chance to exist in some of those spaces. So I wanted to be a little bit of a different entryway into this familiar topic, but through a different lens. It, it invites both. And, and that's one of the great strengths of this book that, that I think people who, who um, will read it and recognize scenarios or emotions, familiarity, they, they will feel seen, they will feel recognized, and, and hear that voice that we so often need to find in literature, that you are not alone. But uh, for folks who have not lived lives like this, who have not had these kinds of experiences, it is eye-opening, it's heart-opening, it's mind-opening, it's all of those things that, that really invites one hopes not only empathy but action as well some kind of response off of the page in the way that people choose to live their lives and interact with others and that's a lot to ask that's a lot for for any artist uh, to ask of those who encounter his or her art but i think the book really presents uh, a thoughtful point of entrance into these conversations you said a couple things I want to pick up on uh, before we uh, mm -hmm. before I lose sight of those, and one is the you know the the surrealist nature of this book that that we encounter characters here, who in one case is unnamed and in another case is potentially unseen, uh, are, are untethered from reality in some ways. What was it like for for you to sort of to do that to build in all of this uncertainty and ambiguity into this book why why do those things rather than ground it in a more realistic uh, set of scenarios um so there's a lot of different reasons for that like for me i'm a big fan of the surrealism and absurdity in general like i'm a big fan of those genres and those those fields of writing and the, the way that the stories kind of exist in that space but it also became a place where when I was working on the, on the novel, the, the, the author's anonymity to so the main character is completely – he's just known as the author throughout the entire novel. 
Um, that began to tie in thematically with some of the, the topics that the story was wanting to talk about. The story has a lot of discussion about being seen and not being seen, this idea of visibility for black people and also this weird invisibility that occurs as well, um, and that duality that, that, that it kind of causes within people. And so having the author not have a name kind of reflected this idea of you spend so much time with him, and, and yet you never really get to know who he is. You never get to really define who he is as a person. And I think that reflects a lot of the, the, the experience of existence a lot of times for people of all you know, shapes, sizes, creeds, and colors, but particularly, particularly in this kind of discussion point for black Americans where you're often seen as this figure on the news report or this, this character in a movie who gets killed off in the first act by the villain, like, you're seen in all these ways that are very familiar, but you rarely get a true sense of what it is like to encounter, encounter black people and kind of see their lives. And so for the main character that, and for the other characters as well that occur, that anonymity that occurs and this, this sense of seeing them, but at the same time not being able to see them for who they fully are, began to work on a very, very deep thematic level. And that's kind of why it stayed in through the draft. Was there ever a point when the author had a name, or, or was that a decision you made early on to to lean into this ambiguity for that character? No, the, there was definitely a point where, so in the early, like the very first draft, I think, the very first time out, um, I it was this unknown author because I just didn't have a name. I'm really terrible at naming characters. So I just didn't have a name for him. Um, and then a couple of drafts later, I was going through, and I said, well, i got to give this character a name, and so I gave the character a name. Um, and even before I finished revising that draft, I knew that it didn't work for the character to have a name because I could already see what the story was wanting to talk about and the way that it was wanting to talk about things. And so having the character be grounded in that sense and giving him an actual hard identity and a hard name took away a lot of the power of the story and a lot of the, the uniqueness of the story. Um, so he, he had a name for like maybe a draft and then it was just taken away because it just didn't work. <laughs> Uh, one of the great joys of our Pat Conroy Center experience is that every summer we teach a summer camp called Camp Conroy, and we have kids who are between the ages of 8 and 14. And this past summer, uh, one of our older campers, Dustin, who's all of 13, was explaining to me why he never, ever names or describes the protagonists in his short stories. That's a, that's a decision he's made a couple of years ago when he first started writing. And he said he wanted the reader to do that work, do as much of or as little of that work as possible, but he didn't want to make those decisions uh, on, the, on, the, on behalf of the reader. He wanted to leave all of those doors open for as long as he could. And I thought, well, this is a book that Dustin needs to read as well. This is a book that <laughs> Dust, Dustin's going to be drawn to. Um, you know, one of the things that, that <clears throat> is revealed to the character and therefore about the character is his race. We go, we as readers of the book go pretty deep into this before the, we are told and the character, the author is told that he is African-American, which is new information to him in that moment. Uh, but it's written into the flap copy. It's written into the description of the book, the marketing copy of the book. And I think, you know, I think of marketing copy because I used to write it, probably written for about 800 books. Uh, it's sort of like the trailer. And the last I was thinking, you know, the last time I saw a movie without seeing a trailer was Hero at Large, John Ritter, 1980. That's the first movie. That's the last time I encountered a movie with, with no foreknowledge in it. And I'm wondering, in, in your case, it, was that something 
that you uh, were okay with being revealed in the marketing copy and the flap copy that you thought was essential for folks to know at that point? Or, or was that even a conversation that you got to have, whether that would be or wouldn't be part of the description of the book versus something that readers would encounter when the character encounters that? No, I, I knew that um, like my publisher has been really terrific. I had a lot of control over how things worked, and a lot of I was a lot of part of part of the, a lot of the decision making. Um, and so when they when they sent that copy over, and it was you know, obviously kind of spoiling a certain component of it, um, I didn't mind it because I knew that, I, I was very well aware that you know there was there was the marketing of it like it was one secret that was inevitable. Like it's not like an ending plot twist, so to speak. Right. It was like it's one it's one component of the story that was always going to be talked about ahead of the story. Like reviewers would have gotten early copies of the book and they would have posted in their reviews about that. It's like that that was always going to come out pretty early on in the process. So I kind of saw like there was no real no benefit from fighting that particular battle because again it was a thing where reviewers and everyone months before the book even hit stands were going to be talking about it and putting it out there for people. Um, I, I, I think that the interesting thing about that is um, people so far it hasn't really impacted like readers have kind of come to it and you know, they're obviously going knowing that it's about that. Um, but that, that moment is still a very powerful and funny and unique moment for readers. Like a lot of my readers have really commented on that moment. Um, mm -hmm. So even though people kind of know what's there, know that it's there, I think it still kind of catches them and hits them in the right spot. So it all worked out okay, I think. That's good to hear. It it is a, a big bolt moment that happens in the novel, and there's there's plenty of humor in it as well, which is something you balance really beautifully in the novel. It it uh, goes so easily, seemingly so smoothly, from moments of of farce and comedy to these heartbreaking, heartrending moments as well, and then back again, over and over again. Uh, and that seems quite intentional. I don't know that it was easy or effortless in any way. I imagine it, it certainly wasn't. But I'm wondering if you're willing to talk a little bit about the balancing act of tone in the novel. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's interesting. So for me, uh, it was a very personal project. Very, you know, there is, it's got some semi-autobiographical components. It was my first novel where I really had a straight, hard discussion about race in America, which had me as a writer and a person just reflecting on my thoughts on it and a lot of my personal experiences through life. And so there were a lot of really difficult writing days, plain and simple. And the comedy sections, which I knew I wanted to be comedic, you know, that was, that was pretty early on. There was going to be a comedy. Um, the comedic sections were really good about helping me balance out that writing. Like I would have very difficult weeks trying to do these really heavy, powerful, like personal scenes and I needed a break from it. And so the comedy became a way of giving me a reader as a writer that balance. And so I found that for readers, that balance kind of, they, they needed that balance as well sometimes. Um, now finding had that balance and like trying to dovetail between those scenes and swing from one to the other, that definitely took a lot of revising, a lot of, just a lot of late nights burning the, burning the midnight oil, so to speak, trying to get those scenes kind of ironed out. But it was definitely a, it's something I've been wanting to do for a while was write a very, to write something very comedic and surreal. Um, and so it was really good to kind of finally have the freedom and the, the ability to do that. And thankfully, I got, I, think I got lucky enough to where it seemed to work for readers, and that's always the biggest part. 
it it adds so much to the book because if the book were heartrending from beginning to end, I don't think a lot of readers, myself included, could take it. It would be the book that you put down yeah. and put down and put down, and and you would miss out on it. Uh, but because of that heartbeat, that that genuine uh, tonal balancing act that you do so well, it, it is a book you can stay engaged with. Uh, Lori Anderson from Nevermore Books, who will be interviewing you about a month from now, said that she read the last four chapters over and over again for that very thing. You know, she needed she needed to take both sides of the pendulum, and those four chapters mm-hmm. really deliver on that just over and over again. So she kept revisiting those in particular. And I've heard that from a lot of folks as, as we've been discussing it in book clubs and other conversations here around Beaufort, that people have have been drawn to particular scenes or chapters that they do want to read and reread and reread again that they really resonate with them. And and that's high praise for any book, I would say. Yeah, I think it's the highest praise um, for sure. <laughs> well, let's back up a couple steps and talk a little bit about uh, the structure of, of the novel or one of the structures, one of the, of the threads of the novel, that this is the, the story of an author on book tour. And you came through Beaufort on a book tour, December of 2018, part of our Visiting Writers series, you were here with our friend Wiley Cash uh, in conversation. Uh, we had a really wonderful time hosting both of you that night. Um, but I remember afterwards at dinner, you were talking a little bit about the possibility of trying to put together what at that time I think may have been a memoir of some of the more outlandish experiences you'd had on book tour. So how did you go from that initial idea to this book, to this multi-layered, multifaceted book? Yeah, so I had I do I remember that conversation very vividly actually. Um, yeah, at that time I was working on hell of a book, um, it, and because I've, I've actually been working on this for quite a few years actually. This uh, this whole component of the author on book tour kind of started back in 2013 when the return came out, and I had this really big whirlwind book tour for that novel. Um, so I want, I knew for, I've known for almost, you know, five, six, seven years now, longer than that, maybe that I wanted to do that. And I've written pieces of it here and there. And then at some point around 2015, 2016, 2017, somewhere in that general ballpark area, um, there were so many, the news reports of like the police shootings and the, the trials and the acquittals and all these kinds of things, like it was so frequent and so often. And this is even before you got to 2020 and the, that kind of, you know, kind of culmination of all these things. Um, that became the, the moment when I wanted to make it a bit more personal. And it was probably around 2018 or so that that shift into making it this really personal narrative, not only about this comedy, but more also about this very, very personal, real world kind of experience of being black in America. Like that component came in probably around that time, around 2018, early 2019 or so. Um, because, again, I had the framework of this author on book tour, and I wasn't sure if it was going to work. My agent, when I first pitched it to her, she wasn't really a big fan of it. Um, but I knew that it was a project I needed to write, and then it, it just kind of molded into this very kind of layered, complex story as I, as a person, tried to sort through my feelings on what I was seeing on the news every day and just how I was feeling about it as a person. Um, and that's kind of where it all came from. There's uh, an aspect of that <clears throat> that is in the chapters that I tend to circle back to most often. I mentioned earlier that, that some folks here in Beaufort have their own chapters and scenes that they circle back to. The one that, that I find I'm drawn to most often is sort of the, uh, the one that asks this very question. 
And that's, uh, is there an expectation or even an obligation that black writers, black artists must tell stories uh, of the black community, of the black experience? And uh, this is uh, something that the, the author, the unnamed author, is sort of caught by surprise when this is, uh, this is asked of him within the context of the book. But I'm, I'm wondering what that is, what the weight of that is for you as a storyteller, as, as you know, four novels in, and now here is a book that is very much about that, because the world seems to be asking that of artists more and, all, more, and more to, to respond to the world and the moment that we're in. So do you feel that as, as a weight, as an expectation or an obligation or something altogether different? Um, I think it, it, it changes a bit kind of almost day to day almost to a certain extent. I think that there is the desire to just be seen for the person that you are and the creative voice that you are, whether that be stories about, you know, your culture, your background, your gender, your sex, whatever that thing is. Um, there's a, we all want to be who we are as a whole complete person and not just kind of pigeonholed into one particular identity that we have based upon something that we were born with. Um, and so we struggle with that. As a creator, I struggle with that. Like I want to have stories that are completely not about race and just kind of things that go off and do other things. But what I found was as a writer, I was always the black writer. It was, I was never really allowed to just be an author. Um, and it was something that kind of frustrated me to a certain extent and you just kind of have to accept it. And so part of this, the, in Hell of a Book, that discussion that occurs is something that I was kind of trying to work with and trying to work through and kind of bring up this topic of, because, again, it does come from a place of frustration to where when you're a minority author, like you are a minority author. You're not just an author. You're always a minority author. And the questions when you're on panels and things like that, the questions are always aimed at you. So I kind of wanted to aim that, kind of talk about that directly, because I think the goal should be, to create a space where authors of whatever color, gender, um, orientation, all these people who are minorities can simply be themselves and can tell Star Wars type stories and whatever story they want to tell and not have this sense of not voyeurism that I would say that the, the society as a, as a larger part oftentimes has, but this, this otherness that we're forced to exist in to where it's like you're, you only have value or you have majority of the time have value when you can tell me some unique story about your culture as opposed to just being an American culture. Like I am also an American. I'm not simply an African American. I'm also an American, but it, you get boiled down to those things. And so the story, and so personally, I still struggle with that. Some days I'm okay with it. Other days I'm very much not okay with it. In March of this year at a, at a program in the Connery Center hosts every year called March 4th, which is uh, our way of commemorating the, the anniversary of Pat Conroy's death with a day of, of learning about themes of social justice, which were so central to his life. Uh, we had a we hosted a conversation with Anika Noni Rose, who was the first uh, African-American Disney princess and had had kind of a similar exchange with her about you know, what, what that's like for her, that she's never going to be a Disney princess or an actress. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be that additional label that is inserted before that. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and she struggles with that in, in, in many of the same ways you just described. And 
in some days it feels like an opportunity, a, a way to inspire others or to welcome people into a conversation or an experience they might not feel welcome in otherwise. But it also carries the, the sort of constant awareness of having to be, oh, what would be the right word? An ambassador, let's say, of a uh, mm-hmm. community as well. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think she's found the right balance either, but it's a conversation she likes to have. It's a thing she likes to talk through for her own benefit and for others as well. And that's sort of the way I feel it playing out in Hell of a Book, too. I don't think, it, it, I don't think the character or you as author necessarily arrive at an answer, but it's a question that has to be asked over and over again. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I'm not sure. I think the answer is one that you will that people will chase for their entire lives and try. I think it's very difficult to just plant a flag and say I feel this way about it and I will always feel this way about it, because it does permeate so much of your life and life is such a fluid, kind of ever changing, emotional kind of place to be, that is is difficult to kind of settle into any one thing. And so you just try to try to do your best with it and. Try to find the acceptance that you can sleep with, whatever that looks like for each person. I think they have to find it for themselves. Mm, indeed. You've, you've put a lot of yourself in this book. You mentioned earlier uh, in our interview tonight that, that it is autobiographical, and you've said in an earlier conversation that it may be autobiographical in, in more than people would suspect as they encounter the book. Uh, there, I mean, there's a moment when the unnamed author is literally naked on the page, and metaphorically that that's true of you as well when you start putting uh, truths about yourself in the book, not just in the character of the author, I assume, but also uh, perhaps in suit, the the 10-year-old boy uh, from North Carolina who may share quite a bit of of your story and experiences as well. How do you manage that risk as an author? How do you manage putting yourself into the story in, in that way? I don't know. I'm not sure you really can manage it because I think at the end of the day, one thing, I, one thing I've learned a long time ago from writing is once it's out there, it's out there. There's no way to ever take it back, and, and you have to be okay with that. You have to really – If um, one thing I tell my students sometimes when I teach on occasion, um, I tell students if you're not okay telling this story to a room full of people seven nights a week, don't write it yet. Like you have to be okay <laughs> with that um, because if – you will hit that space. Like if if your book, if your thing you've written becomes successful, like even if it doesn't, like there will come a time when you have to tell this story in front of people again and again and again. And it's it's like taking a scab, particularly if it's something very painful, it's very personal. If you if that scab, if that wound has not fully healed, and you pick at it, it will bleed again. And if you're not ready for that, it can be very overwhelming. Um, and so for me now, I definitely, I definitely, there's some layers in the novel. Like there's a lot of blending reality and fiction. And that kind of gives me a little bit more of a buffer where I can, you know, I can claim and own certain components of the story as being real life and factual. And if I decide for whatever reason, I don't want to kind of claim and own a certain thing. I can say, well, I made that part up and I can kind of, I have a bit of an exit built in here, but that still doesn't change the reality of the fact that it is out there and that people have read it. And sometimes they don't even know that they're reading something that is very personal and very directly from my own life. But that doesn't change the fact that they're reading it and they're interpreting it and they're talking about it and they're having questions about it. Um, so it, you still are out there. You may be one layer removed. And, you know, that plausible deniability may still exist, but you're out there. And I think that's something that you, you just have to learn and prepare for. Um, it's interesting. My agent – it's funny because in the novel I make fun of agents and publishing people so much. 
but my real world agent, she was very protective of me because she said before the book, before we even went to editors with it, um, she said, are you going to be okay with this? Like she said, I see a lot of you in this. Are you ready for that to be out there? Um, Cause she knows like once it's out there, it's out there. And so we decided yes and things move forward, but it's a very strange and challenging process though. It's good to have a protective agent too. And uh, I imagine that's <laughs> particularly helpful in a book that spends so much of its time making fun of aspects of the publishing business, the profession of authorship, including agents and editors and event hosts and escorts and, and the grand cast of characters of, of this life and this book. Did, did you find people uh, who hold those positions in your real life kind of wondering if that's them on the page? Have you gotten any feedback <laughs> about that? Or people absolutely certain that it's someone else uh, other than them when it may in fact be inspired by them? No, it's, it's been pretty interesting. Um, it's funny. I, I talk about my agent. So she, when I was, I wrote this novel kind of in seclusion. Like I had talked to her about it like a couple of years ago, but she but didn't tell her I went back to it. So I wrote the entire thing without telling her about it. Um, and I just sent, it, sent the whole thing to her in one big file. So here, this is my new book. Read it and let me know what you think. So she emailed me back. She goes, oh, I love it. Let's have a phone conversation about it. Let's talk about it. And so we get on the phone call, and the first thing she says is, do you and I need to talk about me? Is there anything I need to, <laughs> we need to talk about? And so I had to reassure her. I'm like, no, it's, you're, you're a wonderful agent. This is all fictional. Um, but, and so, but at the same time, like, it is – there are a lot of components there that are based off of real people that I have kind of dealt with and people who do exist in the real world. And I try to exaggerate them enough to like, you know, cause I, I'm, I don't, I never want to point someone out and like be mean to anyone. So that's why I try to exaggerate things and go really farcical with them. But I mean, yeah, they, they do reflect certain components and certain feelings that occurred when you encounter publishing and you go through that, that machine of making a book and making it come out the other side. Um, the interesting byproduct of it has been that, like, I've, I find people being, like, much nicer to me now, like, in the <laughs> interviews, because they're like, I don't want to wind up in the next book, so let me be really nice to guy and ask him the best questions I can. Um, I've had a few interviewers who said, like, I don't know what to ask you, because in your book, you said you hate when people ask you about the book, so I don't know what to ask you. <laughs> I find it totally hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Now, Pat Conroy, uh, over the course of 12 books, 11 during his lifetime and, and one posthumously, seemingly could only could only manage autobiographical material, whether memoir or fiction. So people always sort of had that risk around Pat, too. Uh, you, you always knew that anything you said or did uh, was, could be fodder for the next book. And mm -hmm. uh, if Pat liked you, he would reward you. And, uh, you know, a likable character would have some aspect of your name or your appearance or personality. And if he didn't like you, he would insert you in a different way. So there's, uh, <laughs> you know, one, one of the great stories about that is uh, a, an absolute racist Pat Conroy encountered as a young man who he wrote into one of the books as an African-American character. So, you know, that, that guy can either <laughs> he can either claim it or he can just remain quiet about it. But there it is on the page, uh, a, a name easily recognizable uh, in our Buford environment. So, um, you know, there was always that risk. But our friend Wiley Cash, who I mentioned earlier, kind of has the exact opposite approach. Wiley has said many times that, you know, the last character he could ever write about, the one he never, ever wants to write about, would be himself. He never, ever wants to put himself 
on the page and feel exposed and vulnerable in that way. He's perfectly willing to dig into his world, if you will, uh, but not into his own life. And uh, I mean, that, I think there's, there's an argument either way, but there's definitely a lot of risk when you put yourself on the page like that, as, as you have, have now done. But apparently some power that comes along with that, as people are now afraid that it's going to happen to them if they ask you the wrong, <laughs> the wrong question. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Wiley, since I veered back that way as well. You two have, have intersected multiple times um, in really interesting ways, too, which is what led us to invite you both down to Beaufort uh, all those years ago. So I wonder if you're willing to talk a little bit about that relationship, because you two have an event coming up together at the Bookmarks Festival, uh, actually just right after you'll be here. So you'll be up in Winston-Salem together on September 24th. But that's not the first time you all have done anything together. So would you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, sure. It's it's one of those really bizarre, serendipitous kind of things that when I tell this, I tell this story and people don't, people never believe it, which I, I don't believe myself. So it's really weird. <laughs> um, so when The Return came out, um, Wiley's book, like Wiley and I did not know each other at all. Like we, complete strangers, I couldn't, you know, had never heard of him. I don't think he'd ever heard of me. Um, so The Return came out and Wiley's first novel had came out, had come out around that same time, like a little bit earlier maybe. Um, so I'm on book tour and almost every book tour, bookstore I went to, people would say, I was telling them, hey, I'm from, you know, from Wilmington, the Wilmington area. And people say, oh, yeah, we had this guy, this guy through here maybe a week ago named Wiley. He's from Wilmington as well. Do you know him? And I said, nope. Then I would go to the next city and it was the same conversation. And I, I'm not kidding. It was like every, every third bookstore I went through, someone was like, oh, do you know Wiley Cash? He was here not too long ago. And I said, nope, never met him, but I got to meet this guy because I keep running into him. So I get back to Wilmington. Um, and again, like I still, I was, I was doing my Wilmington reading. The very first one I did at Pomegranate Books and this, I, I do the reading and it's the woman comes up to me. She's a very nice lady, short, short blonde haired lady, older woman. Um, and she goes, yeah, do you know my son? I said, who's your son? She goes, Wiley Cash. I said, no, I don't. I said, I've heard of him a lot, but I've got to meet this guy. It's great. So his mother, so I actually met his mother before I met Wiley. Um, his mom came out. She bought a copy of The Return. She told me how she loved it, and she she was a big big fan of mine. Um, and so a few weeks later, I emailed I emailed Wiley uh, on Facebook. I messaged him on Facebook. I said, Hey, we've got to meet. I said, I run into your mom. I run into like your your trails of breadcrumbs at every bookstore I've been to. Like we've got to actually meet each other in person. And he replied back. He goes, Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like my mom loves you. She loves you more. She loves me. She loves your book. <laughs> it was just this running joke. Um, so this is over, this has been like two months since I had been on book tour and stuff. And so finally, um, so I emailed, I messaged him, it was about maybe two o'clock in the, well, not that's about 11 o'clock in the morning, um, that we were having this conversation on Facebook. I said, Hey, I'm heading out of town right now, but when I get back, let's you and I sit down have a burger, meet and kind of hang out. He said, sure thing. That sounds great. So I, you know, get off Facebook. I go to the airport cause I was flying out to go to a book reading somewhere or other. Um, I get to the airport. I'm sitting at the airport waiting for my flight, you know, just, you know, waiting for the flight to kind of call. This guy walks up to me. He goes, hey, are you Jason Mott? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm Wiley Cash. He was flying out the same exact day <laughs> from the same airport at the same time. And so we, we, it was like, and that, that sums up the entirety of our friendship. Like every time my book comes out, he's got a book coming out within like two months. You know, if I go to a bookstore, I guarantee he's been there like a week ahead or I'm ahead of him. Um, <laughs> And so now we just we run into each other all the time and we become really good friends and so it's been a blast. But 
it is one of those things where, like, the universe put us together whether we wanted to be together or not. So we're just making the best out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we're big believers in the power and serendipity down here in the low country. It, it happens, you know, an, un, an almost unbelievable amount of times uh, in our mm-hmm. low country experiences. And Pat Conroy wrote about it. He called it the circle. It, it appears in virtually all of his books. It was is definitely part of his experience as well. And he said there was importance to paying attention to that, that those things were not accidents. That was the universe trying to tell you something and Wiley's just good people. So what a great guy to get to hang out with no no matter what as well. And he'll be back down to see us in a couple of months as part of our Pat Conroy literary festival as well. Um, I want to ask you a couple of questions. You have been uh, jumping off of that point. I should say you've been the writer in residence at UNC Wilmington, your own alma mater and Wiley's been the writer in residence and may still be in fact at uh, at UNC Asheville. This may be the most controversial question I'm going to ask in the course of our interview, and, and you can opt out if you choose to, uh, but what is the plural of writer-in-residence? <laughs> oh, that's a good... I, I, I guess it would be writers-in-residence. I, I guess that would be it. I feel like they both need a plural because it's more than one writer and more more than one residence. You're not roommates, so I feel like it's both <laughs> of them. True. But but this is a topic of frequent true. conversation here as we uh, <laughs> as we try to work through things at the Conroy Center. So let's circle back around uh, to a couple other points about Hell of a Book that really impressed me uh, as I read it and reread it. And and one is the the way you use dialogue in the book. It is so rapid fire, just so perfectly executed on the page that you you can't read it without also hearing it in your head and hearing it in a very particular way that seems intentionally evocative of elements of classic cinema. Uh, Would you talk a little bit about how the dialogue works and and how you wrote it in the novel? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a big sucker for language. Um, I'm just the, the, the many ways through the American language is kind of present it. Um, I love television shows like Deadwood where, they, you know, where language is a character in a many aspects. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. another genre that I really fell in love with a few years ago was film noir. You know, Humphrey Bogart, that whole, that whole genre of films from like the mid-1940s up through about the late 1960s, maybe the 70s arguably, but it was a, a time frame in which cinema – the language of cinema, um, and it's not just cinema. There are also film noir and no- there's also noir novels as well, which is where the genre kind of began, actually. Um, Mickey Spillane and you know writers like that who kind of started the genre in books and then transferred it to film. But film noir to me is such a unique representation of American language in terms of cadence and the mixture of slang and how the the diction kind of works together. Like it, it functions. It's a, it's a time capsule of a time in which people never really talk that way. That's the other thing about it. Like film noir is a completely fabricated type of language where like real world people rarely ever actually spoke that way, but it it is presented in such a unique, fascinating, interesting way that you cannot help but believe it. It it becomes real to you. And so I fell in love with that. I just, I love the cadence of it, the rhythm, the distinctness of it. I'm always a fan of very distinct, like, um, accents from like certain parts of the country and slang and all this, like it just fascinates me. So I wanted to replicate that for the novel and it also worked in the, as a thematic device for certain parts of the novel as well. Um, that's, where, that's where it really came from. It came from my love of language and my fascination with and love of film noir 
and what language, what the American language does in that particular kind of space. It adds a, a rhythm to the book that people may not readily associate with uh, the themes of the book. This is, as you said earlier, something that you are able to introduce that, that may expand the conversation or, or offer a different uh, vantage point on it by, by way of throwing something into the book that is a bit unexpected. And the dialogue is certainly that. It becomes immediately memorable, and because of that, it adds a, a layer of power to it uh, that, that works so well. It, it's just stunning to, uh, to encounter it and then to get acclimated to it throughout the book. So again, I congratulate you on that aspect of it. I want to I pick up on something else here, uh, too, and that's um, <clears throat> that, that you bring a multiple skill sets as a writer to the table in these books. You have a BFA in fiction, but an MFA in poetry, and you were and, and are an accomplished poet in addition to being a novelist. And I think, if I remember correctly, you've done some screenwriting as well. So I'm curious, uh, does, does one set of skills as a writer, does one set of interests as a writer bleed over into the other? Is there something that you're doing as a novelist that really comes from your experiences as a poet, for example? Yes, wholeheartedly. Um, I'm a huge fan of kind of what I call it cross-training. I try to tell students mm. that they should always cross-train their writing um, because it has really shaped my writing style and my ability and flexibility on the page. For instance, um, so I've, fiction is where I began writing. Like I, I've been writing fiction since I was about 14 years old or so. Um, and one of the problems that I really had with my fiction for a very long time was I was very long-winded. Um, scenes and descriptions just really ran on for really too long, and it was something I, I was struggling to get past. And then I found poetry, and poetry obviously teaches you a very specific type of economy of language, and it teaches you to kind of be direct but also powerful in a short space. Um, and so once I found that, I would go back to my fiction, and I could, I could take a whole paragraph and condense it down to two sentences or maybe even less and still have that same type of power and the same fluidity there um, and then on the other side of that, one thing I struggled with in poetry was poetry oftentimes is very, it takes a lot of leaps, creative leaps, and sometimes you can lose your reader when things, when people leap around too much in poetry. So my poetry became very narrative-driven, very sequential, very, I wouldn't say straightforward, but there was a, a story arc to the things that I wrote because I had so much of a fiction background. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about dialogue, a lot of that came from working on screenplay projects because screenplays are so heavily dialogue-driven. Like they, they make you just see the words that the characters are speaking and how they're speaking them. Um, and so that folded itself into my novel writing as well. So, again, that's why I tell students and other writers, aspiring writers, um, oftentimes you should cross-train. Don't, don't just do the one thing you're comfortable with try another thing for an extended period of time and see what you can learn from that and bring back to your primary skill set. Mm, I think that's great advice for writers. As a reader, are there other writers who you are reading where you recognize that? I'm thinking, for example, of Ron Rash, uh, who would probably echo quite a lot of what you just said as to the ways in which his life as poet bleeds into his life as short story writer and then as a novelist as well. But are there other folks like that that, that, uh, that you are reading and would recommend? Well, yeah, one of my favorite writers has always been Dalton Trumbo. Um, and Dalton mm. Trumbo had a very, you know, he was a National Book Award winner, but he's also a extremely celebrated screenwriter. Um, 
And he, you know, he's got a, I mean, a movie about his whole life. He's got a very interesting, you know, kind of fascinating kind of life experience. But his style of writing, I think, is something that I, when I was younger in particular, wanted to kind of emulate his style and how he got to where he was. Um, another author that I'm a big fan of who I think I patterned myself, or at least I tried to learn from, I'll say, I'll probably say that, but I tried to learn from, um, is Neil Gaiman. You know, Neil Gaiman is a, one of those writers who can write anything. He, he, he can write in any genre, in any format, in any kind of, you know, style of writing, I think, and that's something that's really fascinated me. And so I try to learn from people like that who don't necessarily define themselves by one specific type of style of writing or genre of writing, go where the creative story kind of creative moment takes them. And so that's something I try to do with my own writing. Mm-hmm. What led you as a 14-year-old uh, to begin on that path? What led you to want to be a storyteller, writer in any capacity? Honestly, it was John Gardner, the author. John uh, Gardner single-handedly yeah. made me a writer. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up being a, a big bookworm kind of nerd. Like, I, I love uh, mythology and folklore, you know, the Odyssey and, you know, Beowulf in particular. Like Beowulf was one of my favorite stories growing up. Um, I, I probably was 12 or 13. Like, I was just – I knew that story backwards and forwards. I just adored the story of Beowulf as a lot of – you know, the guy with the sword killing monsters, how can you not love that as a young boy? And so I was such a big fan of it. And then when I was about 14 years old, I was in an English class, and we read an excerpt from John Gardner's novel Grendel. Um, and for those yeah. who don't know, Grendel retells the story of Beowulf from the monster's point of view. And when I read that excerpt, it completely blew my mind. Like, one, I didn't realize that someone could have, quote, unquote, permission to take such an established story and redo it. Um, and then also to do it in such a way that I, I looked at Beowulf, the story that I love, and his hero that I love, I looked at them both in a completely new light. And I remember when I finished reading Grendel, uh, that excerpt from Grendel, rather, I was st- sitting there, and it, it felt like a bell was reverberating inside me. It was such a powerful feeling. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to one day make someone else feel this exact way that I'm feeling right now. And I've got to be a writer to make that happen. And so I started writing short stories after that. Um, and, you know, 20, 20 years later, <laughs> things happen. <laughs> well, that, that is a fascinating point of entrance into the world. But what good motivation to, to, to find a book that speaks to you in that way. Uh, I had a, a similar experience with Grendel as a freshman in college when it was recommended to mm. me. And, you know, the idea that, that every person has a fully rendered story, whether you, whether you get to know it or not, every person, every character is the hero of their own story was brand new information to me at that point in my life and made me mm-hmm. want to want to look a little deeper into the stories I was telling and the, and the way I was experiencing the world too. So that was a really impactful book for me at a different point and maybe in a slightly different way, but an, an extraordinary novel, absolutely extraordinary novel. Let's talk a little bit about your very first novel then, um, the return that comes out and uh, you know seemingly very quickly gets optioned for television, uh, not just by anyone but by Brad Pitt's production company, and runs uh, for two seasons. Were you aware of how unique that was, or did that happen to you? And you thought, well, I guess that's just the way the world works, and lucky me that it's happening. Did that feel extraordinary when it was happening to you straight out of the gate like that? No, that was complete. Like I, it felt 
completely extraordinary. Like I had won the lottery and I knew it. That's that's really what it came down <laughs> to. Like I, I I'd gotten the golden ticket from Willy Wonka, and like and it was just it was such an unbelievable thing. And I knew even as it was happening, I said you know I, I kind of reminded I told myself I said you know this is an exception. This will not happen again. Like this is because again like to have things happen that quickly. Um, I mean you know the book was optioned in July, roughly, I think, June or July of 2012. And before the book was even released in August 2013, they had already been picked up for a pilot and was filming the first season. The season was going to be out. Like, like it, was, it was an unbelievable timeline. Like, I, you know, I talked to people that were on the show, like the producers and stuff like that, and everyone was just like, we've never seen a project go through this quickly. Like, projects take three to five years on average to find a home and to get developed and, like, the whole process – so to have something go from, you know, being options to being on television in less than a year is almost unheard of. And so I knew, I, I knew right then, it was like, I, I won the lottery, don't expect this to happen again. But it was still a very wonderful, like, experience. Like, everyone involved from, you know, my agent to, you know, film people that I worked with and, like, the production crew and the actors, everyone, it was such a wonderful experience. So I still feel very lucky to this day that I was able to experience that. It's a masterful novel, and it was a really wonderful television show as well. And not everybody gets to have that. People, uh, authors very often get the excitement of an adaptation, but it's not then uh, the success that the book is or, or people who love the book absolutely hate the film or the TV show for whatever reason. Not, you know, there's not always that happy experience on both sides of it that you got to, uh, got to enjoy in this case as well. What... What does that bring to your life as a teacher? What does all of this bring to your life as a teacher to have had these kinds of successes with books and, and to have become a part of ongoing national conversations about topics of race and identity, big ideas like that? How do you, how do you hone that into the way that you approach your students who are at a very different point in, in their writing lives than you are? I think the, the biggest thing that it has taught me with students is I – I try to be very honest and very candid with students about the reality of being a writer. Um, I think there is so much mystique around being a writer, and writers perpetuate it. Like, writers do not help that at all. Um, <laughs> writers work very hard at building this mystique. And, you know, people, when you mention, when you say a writer, people think depressed or alcoholic. Like, that's, that's the archetype <laughs> of writers. Like, you're one of those two things. And, you know, Charles Bukowski, I blame him for a lot of that. Like there, there's a lot of people <laughs> for whom this is what they think of, and writers themselves, like, they, they, they ingest that. And they also think that, you know, a novel means you're a millionaire for, for life, and it's just it's, this it's, it's kickback and party and drink all day and occasionally turn something out. When the reality of writing is it is a very challenging life, both, you know, logistically, financially, uh, emotionally, it is a workhorse kind of life. You know, I get up every day. I do 10 pages of writing every single day. Um, like that is, I'm up at 5 a.m. in the morning trying to get my pages turned out before the world kind of wakes up and I have to do other things. Um, you know, you're always trying to make that, make sure the book sells. And if that doesn't work, you got to do all these other things to kind of make your ends meet. Like it is a very challenging process. And it is not this kind of dream, you know, it's, it's not this laissez-faire kind of lifestyle. Like it is a very much a workman lifestyle. So I, I teach that to my students. Like I try to be honest with them about how, how editors work, how agents work, how the business looks at them and will look at their work when it comes to the market. Like one thing I tell students is 
you got to remember everyone in the in everyone in the chain of being that goes from you know the moment you show your book to an agent, the agent sees it as a product, the editor sees it as a product, the marketing team sees it as a product, like everyone. So you have to learn to see that see your work not only as this thing that you created, which is beautiful, but also as a product. You have to be able to talk about it as a product and kind of work with that and navigate and steer through all that. Um, so I, I use my my experiences. Because again, I, I've been I've had experiences in film, television, you know, books, you know, book stuff, best-selling novels. So I just try to be as straightforward about like the hidden components of being a writer that people forget about, and the pitfalls that are always there that people don't talk about. I make those the cornerstone of my teaching ability. I think that's a really important thing to balance with with young writers, writers of any age, really, who who are entering this uh, the business side of it for the first time. It's figuring out how to balance the craft of writing with the business of authorship. Those those are uh, different mindsets, but both absolutely essential to making a livelihood out of this world as well. Pat Conroy had the benefit of having a creative writing teacher who, who taught him that when he was 17, when he was a high school student. Her name was Ann Head. And from the 1940s to the 1960s, she was one of the best-known Southern writers. She kind of faded a bit into obscurity since, but uh, she wrote a book called Mr. and Mrs. Bojo Jones came out in 67, same year The Outsiders came out, and it was credited alongside The Outsiders of, of helping create what we now think of as the young adult novel genre. And, you know, that was Pat Conroy's first creative writing teacher. And she uh, was doing very much what you just described, talking about what it was like to work with agents and publicists and movie deals and all of that in this classroom with high school students. So, what, what insight they got at that point. Pat Conroy was, was one of six of students like that. Did you have a mentor like that? Did you have someone doing for you what you are now doing for your students to sort of introduce you to those aspects of publishing and, and the business of authorship? I'll say not so much about it. I definitely had writing mentors, um, people who kind of helped develop my writing for sure. But as far as the business side of writing and that, that – that component of things, I would say, I didn't really have a mentor in that regard. Like a lot of, you know, when the, when we sold the returns and all those wonderful things began happening, like I had a very sudden and steep learning curve to kind of kind of climb and navigate. I had to learn how to deal with, how to you know, look at contracts, how to deal with agents, how to deal with editors, how to deal with film editors, I mean, um, film producers, how to do with like uh, film agents and that, that whole other dynamic over there and how to navigate all of that at the same time. Um, and it, so, yeah, it was very much a learn-as-you-go kind of process. And so that's why I, as a teacher I want to mitigate that for my students um, because, again, like it is still, you know, that, that level of like lightning strike, lottery ticket success is a very rare thing, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn the basics of how to approach an agent. What do agents look for? How do agents look at your work? How do you deal with it? How do you talk about your own work to someone like an agent or an editor? I think one of the hardest things that, that writers struggle with is how to talk about their own work. Um, and so I've got a lot of things where I, just, I teach students not how, not how to sell your work, but just how to look at your work from clean eyes and say, this is what my work is trying to talk about. This is how it tries to talk about it. Here are some comparisons to that, like, those kinds of things are the ones that I try to bring to the table. Another aspect of all of this, uh, which I think you do so well and with a genuine sense of gratitude, is engaging with readers 
as well. And, and that, too, uh, becomes a theme of Hell of a Book. There's uh, some really wonderful moments when the unnamed author is told, I think, by his his media coach, his media trainer, you need to connect with your readers at every opportunity. And so much of that character, that, that media coach, is sort of played for farce. But every so often, you know, he stumbles onto a really good line. And there are uh, there are characters from Shakespeare, of course, who do the same thing, who, you know, spout wisdom almost unintentionally. But I think that that is a very wise thing to say, and you do it so well. So in our last few minutes here, I'm wondering if you would willing to talk a little bit about what it means for you as a writer to have garnered all these wonderful and loyal readers out there who who are supporting and enjoying and discussing and reading and rereading your work. Yeah, it's pretty. I still struggle with believing that is real. Sometimes it is a very <laughs> overwhelming kind of feeling because again, I remember myself as a you know I am a reader and I have authors who I'm big fans of and people who I would love to meet in real life and people that I follow. And so to think that there's someone else out there who has, has similar feelings toward myself and toward my writing. Um, Cause I always think that reading someone's work is one of the biggest gifts that you can give. Because again, it is a, you know, when you read someone's work, you, you sacrifice time. You're giving up time out of your life that you will never get back. You will never get back the hours it took you to read some novel that I wrote. And so when you give up that time, you sacrifice this time that you could have been spending with your family or doing whatever you want to do, but you've given me that by reading my novel, that is one of the biggest gifts that you can ever give to anyone. And so when people not only already are gifting me with just reading the book, but then they also actually like the book and they, they want to talk about it and they're excited, they want to you know, meet me and read about it and talk about it, um, that becomes just such a level of kind of unbelievable that, and humbling that is, is – it's, it's really it's really fascinating. I feel incredibly fortunate to to be where I am. Like I said, I still struggle to believe it because um, I've had readers who talked about you know I talked earlier about how I was so moved by Grendel, and I've had readers who talked about that same feeling when they read The Returned or now with Hell of a Book, and that is you know that's my lifelong goal to make someone else feel that way and to have to kind of be achieving it sometimes is just really really amazing. Well said. It, it is a gift of time that readers give to writers and a gift of story that writers gift to readers. And you've given us the gift of your time tonight. I want to thank you so much for being here on the podcast with me. Uh, once again, we've been talking to Jason Mott, author of Hell of a Book, available absolutely everywhere, and I can't recommend this novel enough. It's, uh, it's very generous of Jason to make some time for us in Beaufort. Uh, very soon, he'll be with us again, September 23rd, part of our fifth annual Low Country Book Club convention. And Jason will be appearing with our friends at Nevermore Books that evening. And we're grateful to you, Jason, for making a trip down to see us in beautiful Beaufort. Looking forward to that very much. Thanks once again, everybody out there in podcast land for listening tonight. And once again, Jason, congratulations on all of the wonderful success and all of the conversations being held around the country about hell of a book. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Thanks.